Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potts, your host, a visual arts teaching artist. so much for listening. If you haven't yet, please subscribe. You can also sign up to get my newsletter for weekly notes about each episode and sneak peeks of any upcoming events, open calls, or other exciting news. Just head to teachingartistpodcast.com to join. Speaking of exciting news, I'll be doing an Instagram live talk with Victoria Fry of Visionary Art Collective this week. We'll be talking about art and teaching on Thursday, August 6th from 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Time or 5 to 7 Eastern Time. I'll also be taking over the Artist Introverts Instagram on Wednesday, August 5th, so you can get a little peek into my life there. Believe it or not, I do identify as an introvert. I'm just getting better at putting myself out there with age. I'm always nervous to do things like this. Can you relate? Also, don't forget that our exhibit is up right now at tapexhibit.com. Go check it out. Don't miss the art activities related to the themes within the show. Maria and I would love to hear feedback. Did you share with your kids or students? How did they respond? What would you like to see included in exhibits in the future? Many of the works are for sale, with 20% supporting Amplifier and 70% going to the artists. I really want this podcast and anything that comes of it to support artists, like truly support artists. I want to create community and build each other up. It's been amazing getting to know the artists I've spoken with and being able to share their stories. And I've loved connecting with some of you on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you so, so much for listening and for your feedback. As we gear up to return to school in the midst of this pandemic, I'm also thinking about how I can continue this work. I may have to slow down my pace a bit and shift to biweekly or monthly episodes. One major thing that would help with having time to keep this up would be hiring an editor. So far, this has been a one-woman show. I've learned a lot and I've enjoyed it, but I just don't see how I can sustain this pace once I'm back to teaching. And I did finally hear that I will, in fact, be back to teaching this fall entirely online. I have been doing a few things towards hiring an editor to help. One is just looking for an audio editor. I would love to hire someone in need right now. If you know someone, send them my way. The other step toward that goal is earning enough to offer a fair wage. I've been setting up a variety of ways that you can support the podcast, which are listed over on our support page at teachingartistpodcast.com support. I'll link to it in the show notes. Go check it out. There are several ways to help with just a tiny bit of your time, and I so appreciate it. 
You can help us spread the word by leaving a review on iTunes or sharing your favorite episodes on social media. Be sure to tag Teaching Artists Podcast when you share. And tell your art teacher and artist friends to listen. I've also set up some affiliate links with many companies we art teachers use often. Dick Blick, Crayola, Utrecht, Discount School Supply, Born Shoes. Hey, you got to take care of those aching feet, especially if you're pushing a cart all over this year. Uh, Pete's Coffee and a few more. If you're planning to buy something from these places, click through my link over on that support page, teachingartistpodcast.com slash support. That way, I'll get a small percentage at no cost to you. Totally win-win. If you are able to offer financial support, I've set up a Patreon for monthly donations as low as $2 per month. That's just 50 cents per episode. If 60 of you offer that amount, I can hire an editor for half of my episodes. We also now have a shop with teaching artists shirts, mugs, totes, and more. And a quick side note on that, I did look for a print-on-demand service that would integrate with our website and produce quality products. I initially tried Teespring, and I am so, so grateful to those of you who bought a few items there. Thank you! I've now shifted to Printful because their quality is a bit higher. If you know of a Black-owned and or female-owned print-on-demand company that integrates easily with WordPress and includes eco-friendly options, please let me know. I would love to make that switch. So for now, if you would like a t-shirt or tote or apron proclaiming yourself as a teaching artist, go grab one from our shop. Thank you. Now let's get to this week's episode. It was so nice talking with Danielle Nilsson. We've been Instagram friends since we were matched up in the artist parent academic peer support groups, and I've loved following along with the evolution of her work. Danielle talked about making the shift from more representational landscape painting to abstract collage and textile pieces. She also shared her teaching philosophy and how she dove into teaching for artistic behavior and has adjusted the structure of her curricula over the years. She was so encouraging and inspiring. It made me want to work on a simpler daily art practice. Danielle Nilsson is a painter, collage artist, and textile maker interested in structure, fragmentation, and wholeness. Often giving new life to found materials, she follows an impulse to preserve, transform, and create moments of joy. Her vibrantly colored work is an offering of hope and a celebration of beauty in the overlooked. Danielle is an artist and educator living and working in St. Louis, Missouri. She holds a BA in Fine Arts from Drury University and an M.Ed. from University of Missouri, St. Louis. She teaches elementary art by day and paints in her home studio by night. She is married to a fellow teacher and is mother to Genevieve and dog mom to Bart. So hi, I am talking to Danielle Nilsson. I'm so excited to hear from you today and get to connect this way. We've kind of connected already on Instagram and through the Artist Parent Academic Group. But hello, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation too. Yeah, so I like to start with just some background and kind of framing it around making art 
and teaching art. Mm-hmm. Which one came first for you? Were you kind of always an artist, always a teacher? Which one came first? So definitely being an artist came first, uh, which was kind of an accident. I mean, I've always, <laughs> <laughs> I've always been a really creative person and a creative child growing up was always mm-hmm. writing short stories and drawing and playing and making things. But I had no idea what I wanted to study when I went to college. And I just happened to be placed in a drawing class my first semester as an elective. And I loved it so much. But I signed up for painting the next semester with the same professor. And then after that, I signed up for painting two and then painting three. And then all of a sudden, I was like, I guess I'm an art major now. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And then upon graduating, I didn't really have a plan. I didn't want to go to grad school for art yet. I just didn't think my work was really there yet. I wanted to make more and kind of figure out what I was doing. But I didn't want to be a teacher at that time either. So I actually Mm -hmm. ended up doing two years of service through AmeriCorps. Oh, cool. Yeah. And I worked the first year I worked with college students in like an educational mentoring capacity, like first generation college students. Mm -hmm. And then the second year, I actually did something different. And I worked in a public library. And I did. Yeah, I did education, a kind of program development for some education initiatives that served refugee and immigrant populations through the library. Wow. So not, not art related experiences, but both education related. And I was starting to miss the art, but also enjoying the education. And I was like, well, I guess I am qualified, sort of to teach art. And that would be a way to kind of blend these two interests. So Mm -hmm. I started applying and I actually got hired by a charter school because I wasn't certified mm-hmm. yet and I didn't have a degree in art education. And a lot of charter schools, at least in Missouri, have more flexible requirements for their certification for teachers. Right. I think if they have like an 80-20 rule, like 80% of their staff has to be certified, but the others can be like working towards it. So uh-huh. I worked not as an art teacher, but my first year I was like a teaching fellow. Uh kind of like a assistant and like learning about teaching. And that was in a kindergarten classroom, which was really fun. Yeah. The little ones. Yes. Just all their imagination and all the, everything that they're learning, primary colors everywhere, all of that. Yes. (laughs) And then I didn't really jive with the school that I worked at. So I started looking at other positions after that. And I was actually able to get an art teaching position for the following year at a different school. And so I've been at that school for three years now. And I teach preschool through fourth grade art there. Cool. Amazing. And I feel so much sort of connection because I actually also did AmeriCorps right after college and not like not art related at all. Yeah. You know, like environmental stuff, but then worked in schools again, not art related, (laughs) like lots of sort of education experience before kind of coming back around to art education. So I connect with that path. Like I relate to that, you having that path as well. That's so awesome. I didn't know that about your story. We have that in common. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And did you now, I know you do have your master's in education, right? So you I do now. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So in that couple of years, you got that and now you're mm-hmm. certified. Yeah. The first school that I worked at kind of had a partnership with a local college mm-hmm. and helped pay for the certification 
or the certification and or master's program. It was only a couple mm-hmm. of classes extra to do the master's. So I started yes. it there and was able to continue after switching schools. And That's great. Yeah. <laughs> and do you feel like, so you've taught really always at the elementary level. Do you like that age level? Would you ever want to switch and teach older kids? I do like that age, um, that age level. Yeah. My first year teaching art actually was, I was K through eight. So I did mm-hmm. have one year of working with middle school students. Yeah. And that was challenging. I think <laughs> I feel like it takes like yeah. a special person to work with middle schoolers. Just all the things they're going through in their life um, and bodies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I don't necessarily want to do that again, but I am interested in trying to teach high school at some point. But for now, I like the little kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you like about the little one? I love just how free they are to create and how like uninhibited they can be Mm -hmm. like with middle schoolers I noticed there's so many like not wanting other people to see what they're doing or not really wanting to try because they're afraid of failing or getting really Mm -hmm. frustrated if it doesn't look a certain way and there's a lot less of that with younger kids and they are more prone or like they have a more natural inclination towards abstract work too which I'm just really drawn to visually so I enjoy mm-hmm. I enjoy that and just their sense of color and their sense of composition seems like almost innate at times and I just love you know walking around the room and observing them at work and the, or just seeing something that just stops me in my tracks and I'm like oh my gosh this six-year-old made this piece of artwork that is better than anything oh. I will ever do <laughs> yes oh. and then they just throw it away afterwards <laughs> right you're like no give it to me uh-huh. I definitely <laughs> hoard some uh, abandoned oh. artworks <laughs> yeah and do you feel like your teaching like informs your art making in that way or in an, any other ways I do think so I think it's indirect but I think it definitely has come to inform um, especially yeah. since I kind of made the transition from working slightly more representationally doing landscape paintings towards more abstract work recently I think you know I was partially influenced by some of the artwork I was seeing kids create Mm -hmm. and then also just just the bright colors and fun shape that they use and just all the materials and supplies and bins for organizing and just all the you you just kind of associate like bright vibrant colors with childhood Mm -hmm. sometimes yeah (laughs) and I definitely use bright and saturated and vibrant color in my work that's kind of like a common feature in all my work yeah and would you want to talk more about that shift from kind of more representational to more abstract yeah it's something I've been trying to process a little bit yeah still I just kind of got bored with the landscapes Mm -hmm. I guess that's kind of what I had been doing when I was in college and then once I graduated there was probably two or three years where I wasn't making as much work like maybe a couple paintings a year I really did not have a daily practice like I do now Mm -hmm. and so taking that break and then coming back to a creative practice it was just like not fresh anymore more and mm-hmm. my interest. I mean, I still am very interested in certain aspects of or certain formal aspects of that work and of landscapes, but mm-hmm. my interests and had changed a little bit. And so I just kind of needed something new. And then also becoming a mother had changed that too, in terms of mm-hmm. materials. So I was using acrylic paint and which is 
you know, safe, quote unquote, safer than oils and things like that. But for me, it was the time and the effort that was required to maintain a consistent practice. It's like, you know, you have to get out all the tubes and you have to squeeze out a little bit of each and then you have to get your water and and you have to prepare the surface. And it's like, okay, that's like 10 minute already. And then you have to get into it and you want to keep going so that you don't waste anything on your palate. And then you have to clean it up. And it's like, now I can sit down and do a collage and like, two minutes and leave it there and if the paper blows away or my daughter grabs it like it doesn't really matter I can find more so right kind of finding new materials and mediums to play with some of the same ideas I was interested in with paint and landscapes, but with different, more accessible or kid-friendly materials. Yeah, I love that sort of not preciousness. (laughs) I'm trying to, I'm searching for the right word for that. But, you know, being okay with it blowing away and you're like, I'll just get more. I'll do another one. It's okay. I love that sort of attitude about art making and especially as a mother, I feel like that's a good attitude just kind of in general. <laughs> like it will all be okay. It'll work yeah. out. <laughs> and I want to return to painting. Like that's still like my my number mm-hmm. one or my first love, I guess, in art. I actually started a couple of paintings this weekend. Ooh, nice. Inspired by some of the collages that I've been doing. Yeah. But I really hope to carry that attitude into it because I think before I would get really hung up on like, you know, I would do a layer and really like how it looked, even though I knew in the back of my head, it wasn't finished and I needed to do mm-hmm. another layer or two, but I was afraid of messing it up or yeah. losing a part of, you know, something that I liked. But I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've seen that message of art is not precious from a couple of artists that I like look up to or follow on Instagram or I've heard on podcasts. And I've definitely tried to really embrace that recently. And hopefully I can take it with me back to painting as well. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy. No. <laughs> I like the idea of um, painting kind of inspired by collage. Do you think of your collages when you're making them almost as like sketches for a painting? Yeah, I kind of think of them both ways. Like I definitely Mm -hmm. think they are kind of standalone art pieces. But I almost I kind of think of everything as a painting, like whether it's like a picture that I take or see on a walk or um, whatever. I'm like, oh, that'd be a good painting. So I do Mm -hmm. think of them as potential studies for paintings and like if it has the right composition or colors that strike me the right way then I'm like okay maybe this one can become a painting but Mm -hmm. now I kind of have to figure out how to construct a painting that looks like that because that's kind of new to me so that's exciting Mm -hmm. but I yeah it's exciting but it's like a new way of working that I'm trying to figure out yeah yeah it's definitely kind of tricky making a shift like that. Like I've I've done that as well, kind of changed the type of work I was making, the materials I was working with, and motherhood did the same thing to me, <laughs> like just yeah. you, know, you got to kind of change the way your process and you and what you adapt. work with. Yeah, yeah, you have to adapt. Yeah. yeah. And I've always been drawn to abstract work and work that really prominently features the formal elements of art mm-hmm. like line 
and color and shape and composition. But since I hadn't really done that, I had mostly done landscapes. I didn't really know, you know, where to start. I feel like when I tried to do abstract paintings, it just didn't feel genuine to completely invent an image. And so Mm -hmm. the collages, there are like I have some outside limitations or parameters, like I'm cutting out shape from magazines. And Mm -hmm. I'm kind of letting those shapes determine like I pretty much once I cut out a shape, like if I see a color or a pattern on the page that I like, I'll cut it, cut it out and try to cut around words or faces. And so those Mm -hmm. shapes, I pretty much leave the same shape once I'm doing the collage. So it's like, I have to work with these set shapes that I didn't Mm -hmm. make really that I kind of just discovered and then mm-hmm. colors that I didn't mix myself. And so trying to figure out how to bring that same mentality to painting yeah, where there are elements that were not up to me. And right. I, I've, I've also been doing that with another body of work that I have in progress right now is like these sewn paintings. So I'm yes. using found fabric and making like a sewn fabric, collage, quilt, whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. out of those and then stretching them on canvas. Yeah, those are incredible. I love how they relate so much to the collages that you're doing. Yeah. And I really do also like this idea of kind of like forfeiting your hand, forfeiting your like part of your decision making. Yeah, it's like I'm not inventing the image. It's like I'm kind of discovering it or like help it, Mm -hmm. helping it come to the surface. Like it's kind of there and I just have to find the right arrangement or something. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. Not inventing it, but like discovering it. Yeah. It's a great, a great way of thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I noticed there were a couple of those sewn pieces that are kind of Mm -hmm. like quilt-like that you just the way you place them in front of the window with the light shining through. Oh, yeah. That was also kind of brilliant. Like, I love how the light changes the color on those. Yes, I have loved that, too. And so my studio at home is in there's like a sunroom addition mm-hmm. on the back of our house so it like it goes from our kitchen into the sunroom and then out to side to the deck and mm-hmm. so we've been spending a lot of time outside on the deck and so when our, we're sitting out there I can see the backs of those pieces from outside because uh, they're still in the window I should maybe take them out at some point so they don't totally change colors but <laughs> right but that's really intriguing me too right now is like mm-hmm. seeing the back and like the pressed seams and the stitches and everything and the staples Mm -hmm. on the canvas and that's providing me with some like visual food for thought as well for like yeah oh yeah (laughs) I like that line of thinking and then I'm I'm even envisioning like somehow stretching it over like a a small like light board or like small light table yeah that would be not like without the UV so it would last (laughs) right yeah that makes me think of do you know the work of Rachel B Hayes I think is her name I've seen her work shared on on Instagram recently and it's she makes these huge installations of sewn fabric that she displays you know in galleries but also out in nature and like photographs them and they're semi-transparent fabrics so the light really really comes through. Uh, Yeah, I will have to look her up. Yeah. So that's one person 
person that I've looked at recently that maybe has indirectly influenced my work a little bit. Yeah. Are there any other big influences? Yeah, I have several painters that I've been looking at. One that has been like an influence from like day one is Richard Diebenkorn. Mm -hmm. He's like my favorite painter ever. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Especially his Berkeley series, I think it is, where he's doing the more aerial landscapes. Because I Mm -hmm. did, my progression was kind of doing these road landscapes and then aerial landscapes based on map. And that kind of led me towards textiles because they have a lot in common formally with their compositions. So just his shape and color and brushstroke and everything I I love. But recently, I've also been looking at Rebecca Morris, Mm -hmm. who has some kind of funky textile inspired shapes in her work as well. I don't I don't know that textiles are like a direct inspiration for her, but I get that when I kind of read that into her work and then like different artists and the pattern and decoration movement, mm-hmm. like Miriam Shapiro. Yeah. And then I've also been looking at a lot of sculpture artists on Instagram lately, just thinking about using materials in different ways. Like mm-hmm. since I've been collecting fabric and paper, and then I've also collected like ribbon and burlap and like the netting that comes on the bags, like the bags of oranges and lemons and things. I've like saved some of that and just, just different stuff that sticks out to me. And I haven't really done much with it yet, but I'm like, I'll see it and I'll think, oh, I have to have this. Like this is going to be a part of something. So (laughs) so I've been looking at, you know, different sculptors and especially, oh, what is her name? Oh my goodness. She, Jessica Stockholder. That's it. She has kind of installations with different objects that are mostly like plastic and just like really brightly colored. And to me, like those installations read as a painting. So Mm -hmm. I've been thinking about that too. Yeah. Oh, I love all of that. And I could, maybe I'll just link to all of these people <laughs> so we can yeah. look at them. Yeah. And I think my interest in like some of these alternative or alternative materials beyond just paint is also influenced by my role as a teacher, mm-hmm. especially as a tab teacher. So I definitely structure my classes based on the teaching for artistic behavior philosophy. So we have awesome. a drawing center and a collage center and weaving and sewing and sculpture. And so I'm always hunting for materials to add to those centers at school. And now that's kind of carried over into my own practice. Yeah. And how long have you been structuring it like that? Did you kind of always, did you jump into teaching that way? Did it just like feel natural? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Especially not having had a formal art education like background or any mm-hmm. classes in art education. Like when I heard about and read about that philosophy, I'm like, oh, this absolutely makes sense because I'm an artist. This is how I work. But I know there are artists out there that work differently than me. And I would like to provide my students with the opportunity to choose those different paths as well. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like for me, it was kind of the same. I, I started out more project based because that's mm-hmm. kind of what I saw other people doing and what felt like I was supposed to do, but it didn't quite feel, feel right. 
Yeah. I was like, I don't want to tell them what to do. Like they should be the artists. <laughs> right. Yeah. I kind of had that same image in my head when I first started thinking about becoming an art teacher. I was like, oh, you know, I could do a lesson inspired by Cezanne one week mm-hmm. and then a lesson inspired by Mondrian the next. And like I had all these, you know, kind of Pinteresty ideas in my head. <laughs> right. And then it was really like, it was like a week or like two before school started that I somehow stumbled upon information about teaching for artistic behavior. And I was like, wait, never mind. Throw everything out the window. We've got to make this happen. Yeah. (laughs) More authentic to me. And how was that? Just kind of diving in, like diving into (laughs) teaching, diving into tab. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was a roller coaster. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) My first year, like I said, I was K-8. And so Mm -hmm. the schedule that we had was like each class was 30 minutes back to back, like all day long. Wow. (laughs) There was like hard time to do a demo and then have mm-hmm. them set up and then they'd work for like seven minutes and then just kind of clean up. So right. was, and then just getting to know everyone and build relationships while also mm-hmm. like I don't think they were they hadn't had tab before so they were not used to such little structure and I didn't have since I was such a new teacher I didn't have as many like structures in place as I could have or should have mm-hmm. so over the last three years it's been kind of a learning journey of like trying something out and being like oh that was great or trying something out and be like mm, that didn't work let's try it this way <laughs> Mm-hmm. And trying to figure out how to have a balance of choice and structure and rules. Mm-hmm. And so I do do some like required or have to projects now. Like, for example, I, I this year I made everyone stop the other centers and do a weaving in um, mm-hmm. a, a certain grade level. I think it was third grade. And then so that they it would all have that skill. And then after that, they could choose to go on and learn some more advanced techniques in weaving or, you know, if they really wanted to go back to drawing or sculpture, those would be mm-hmm. open again. Yeah, I like that idea of, of requiring certain things just as sort of like a skill builder that you feel is necessary that's maybe not something they would usually have, like weaving. Like most kids get an opportunity at some point to draw and right. paint, but weaving is maybe a little bit trickier and needs some some like more specialized instruction but also not as sort of like mainstream for them to come across yeah and I I do bring a little bit of my own bias into the classroom (laughs) because I maybe if I wasn't interested in fiber arts I wouldn't (laughs) require everyone to do that but I love weaving and I love sewing so I make sure to introduce that and Mm -hmm. have everyone try it and how have you found the response do the do a lot of the kids also really enjoy it they do I I think the vast majority of kids love weaving and Mm -hmm. most people or in most students in my experience like even if they don't even if they aren't catching on at first most of them are able to figure it out mm-hmm. and like get the pattern and then it becomes kind of really meditative or like addictive and mm-hmm. they I'll have kids that want to come in during their recess time to work on their weavings and they're like fighting I'll tell them you know okay three at a time can come in <laughs> 
you guys have to take turns and they'll like fight over who gets to come in and do that. But there were maybe a handful in each grade or in each class that just really struggled with it. And it would would usually be like, there would be like an underlying reason for that, like with Mm -hmm. their fine motor skill development or something like that. Um, So I would have alternate activities for them. But by and large, most kids really thrived with it, I thought. Yeah, I was surprised this year was my first year kind of attempting some version of TAB. And Mm -hmm. my fourth grade boys absolutely like went crazy over sewing. Yes. Which I loved seeing. They were like, you know, how show me how to tie this knot. How do I do that? like this <laughs> stitch? They're just obsessed with it and we're asking to come in on during recess. But I've been at that same the same schools for this is my third year and hadn't seen that before, that level of enthusiasm. So I do feel like TAB is a huge part of that, of them being excited and wanting to continue their work. Yeah, definitely. And I noticed the same thing with fourth grade boys and sewing too. It's just so funny. Like we, we recently, like in the middle of the year, they switch the schedule for fourth grade. So in fifth grade, they have like each quarter, they have a different special. And so they decide to try out something similar with fourth grade where for like four or five weeks they would have art and the next four or five weeks they would have music so kind of to get them ready for fifth grade I think and so I was like I don't know that I want to do like the traditional tab that we were doing I kind of want to do like a special project since this is our last time with me so I gave them some things to vote on and every single rotation that I saw chose sewing (laughs) so fun. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I had kids also telling me like, oh, my parents wouldn't let me do this. They don't want me to like use the needles or whatever it was. I know. I had other teachers say that too. Like you're letting my class use needle. (laughs) And in the back of my head, I'm kind of like, uh oh, like, am I, am I going to get in trouble for this? But I'm also thinking like, it's just a needle. Yeah, they might poke their finger and then they'll learn. (laughs) And they won't do that again. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. That's actually, now that I'm, we're thinking back on it, that's actually how I started making my sewn painting pieces was last year when I started offering sewing, we had like this big basket of like smaller scrap pieces. And Uh I was looking for something to do like between classes to kind of reset myself before I, you know, worked on cleaning the room or Mm -hmm. washing brushes or lesson planning or whatever. Yeah. And so I would just, you know, put my hand in there and pick out a couple different scraps that I thought I liked the pattern of or the colors went well together. And I just hand sewed one piece to get to another piece and then another. And I just did it completely without a plan, just Uh. to see what happened and one one piece at a time. And that's kind of where that started. Ah, That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's grown into some really amazing artwork. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) 
So I've been kind of coming back to conversations I had but hadn't yet released and asking about a couple of things. So the first one is really a way for me and other artists, whoever's listening, to help kind of build their internal libraries or, you know, hear about other artists of color, especially Mm -hmm. that we've shared with our students and thought made an impact. So I wanted to ask you if there's any artists, Black artists artists specifically Mm -hmm. that you share and really feel like are impactful for students? Yeah, I could think of a couple. Um, I think some of them are probably pretty familiar. Obviously, Hinde Wiley um, and and, and Amy Sherald. I've shared those like when we were doing some portraits. And then when we do sewing, I talk about the G's Bend quilters. And then El Anatsui. Mm -hmm. I really like his work for fiber art and in installation and mixed media, recycling, all kinds of different tie-ins there. Yeah. And I also really like Micheline Thomas. I don't know if you're familiar mm. with her work. Yes. Okay, she's good. Great. So yeah. I love that she uses glitter and rhinestones and things in her oh. work because I think kids can connect with that and it's like really fun. Yeah. Oh, that's not just in crafts. That's in real art too. Right. And she's got great portraits and landscapes and also like you can tie it into kind of like appropriation and like referencing art history some of her landscapes reference I think maybe some Matisse landscapes I I can't remember off the top of my head Uh and then some of her portraits reference like the Mona Lisa and things like that but bringing it back to a black subject is important right yeah and then I also like Al Loving Mm, as an alternative to Frank Stella he has kind of like two different bodies of works but one is very geometric and focusing on color so I like to show that and then he has a kind of a totally different body of work where he's working with strips of canvases to make these wall hangings right we do a lot with fiber arts in my classroom so I like to show those too Mm -hmm. yeah I love that yeah yeah I got to see some of his work in I don't remember even what museum it was somewhere yeah I'm yeah that was I know (laughs) that was the it was earlier this year and was the first time I had been introduced to him yeah so yeah I was introduced recently too at the art museum in St. Louis they had a piece of his but it was like a small paper piece I think it was like woven paper maybe Ooh, yeah and then I I started looking into his work and found those huge wall hangings which actually also relate to like work that I'm interested in making right now so I was like totally geeking out <laughs> yes and I love that you mentioned that your students do a lot of fiber work because yeah. you've been doing a lot of that too <laughs> definitely and that I think kind of ties into some of the answers I was considering for some of your next questions I think <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah so then the next question is how do you create an anti-racist environment mm-hmm. in your classroom and or how are you working towards that and yeah are you shifting your curricula or have you been yeah so i think one of the big things is like looking back at all the slideshows or lessons that I have and looking through the artists on there and just counting up how many of them are white male artists and trying to take out my own bias because I think it's really easy as art teachers to show the art that we like personally right and so a lot of the painters that I was taught about in school or a lot that I really like you know happen to be white or happen to be male there's a ton of female artists that I share too but some 
sometimes those are, or most of the time, those are white females too. So just looking back and saying, okay, am I just sharing what I know? Like then I need to do some work and I need to find more artists that look like my students and Mm -hmm. share different perspectives that way and decolonizing the Mm -hmm. art history or contemporary art portion of the curriculum. And then I think another thing that's really important, and this is for all teachers, not just art teachers, but paying attention to Mm -hmm. discipline and who is getting called out more often, who is getting, you know, reminders about their bodies or their voices or how they're using materials because there's so much, so many disparities between suspensions and things like that. And I think that can definitely happen in the art room too. I teach at a pretty diverse school. I would say maybe 40% of my students are Black. And then I also have a lot Mm -hmm. of students that are from other countries. So just making sure that I'm being equitable in who I'm talking to about what, (laughs) if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And it's real. I think that's a really hard one when you have to really like retrain yourself or like think about, okay, what is actually problematic about so-and-so's behavior? Is it actually a problem or is it just not the way that we have been taught to think is okay? Right. Because I think sometimes the default defensive answer can be like, well, some of these kids really are acting out more having behavior problems more often. But I think we really need to look and say, well, is it just that they were talking too loud? Or is it just that they were, you know, needing to move their bodies more, whatever it may be, just kind of reframing that. Right, absolutely. Recognizing when it's a cultural bias versus an actual, you know, like disruptive behavior that's actually a problem, which I think is is rare. Yeah, you know, and then I was talking about the same thing with another artist recently and the idea that who deems what is appropriate and what is not what is disruptive and what is not definitely that's why I think it's important as a class and it can be kind of exhausting to do this at the beginning of the year when you have so many classes but Mm -hmm. as a class trying to set norms for your art class so that you get input from the students because if every artist is different like I would prefer a quiet working environment with maybe music or a podcast but A lot of kids prefer it to be more loud and social, talking to each other, walking around maybe. And so kind of getting their input on that and coming up with an agreement so that they can be held accountable like to each other, not just to one white person as the authority in the room. Absolutely. So I think it's important to get student feedback on that and set them together. Mm-hmm. Like how comfortable are we with talking during art making? Like how loud do we want it to be? Mm. Should we stay in our seats or should we walk around? You know, some of that has to be mandated by the teacher. But I think it's important to realize like everyone is different, especially adults and kids. Yeah. For me, I prefer a quiet working environment. But a lot of kids like to be more social while they're working and and be talking with the people at their table and maybe getting up to go talk to someone at another table about their artwork. So just kind of doing that together and then problem solving ahead of time. Like, okay, what if somebody is having problems sharing materials or what if someone is being too loud? What can you say to them? Or if someone is not using their hands safely, what, what should happen? Getting their input on some of that so they can hold each other accountable. Yeah, I love that idea too of talking through like what happens when 
someone doesn't do what they're expected to do and what we've set as the norm for the class. Yeah, yeah, because you don't want to just be the only authority in the room, Mm -hmm. especially as a white teacher. Yeah, I want the students to feel like they have a voice in what happens in those situations. Yeah, and it's interesting because I don't feel like I've necessarily thought through it like that. And I feel like that's really helpful advice for teachers Yeah, to not make yourself the sole authority in the room mm-hmm. which is a lot easier said than done <laughs> yes yeah yeah I feel like it also connects to the whole tab philosophy definitely and how that sounds you know when you just dig into it on a surface level it again sounds like much easier than it actually is yeah <laughs> oh just let them create whatever they want to create okay yeah. that's easy <laughs> <laughs> but yeah how you structure that and give structure with a lot of empowerment and freedom is challenging. Yeah. And I anticipate this year will be even more challenging. Oh, yeah. And that's another thing I'd love to dig into. I know you'll be on maternity leave for a little while. Yeah. But how are you? How is it looking for this year? And yeah, would you have any advice around dealing with the pandemic while also shifting their teaching to be more culturally responsive? Right. Especially for teachers who hadn't already been incorporating any of these ideas into their classroom, how to kind of shift their teaching. Yeah, so I just, I actually just started this week working on some of my sub plans Mm -hmm. and thinking about, because we hadn't gotten a ton of information yet on what class will look like. But it sounds like at our school, students will still be coming to my classroom for art. It will just be in the smaller groups. Mm. And then we'll also be having a virtual, families can opt to stay virtual. And so I don't know exactly what that part will look like yet. But for the in-person classes, I think I'm going to have desks instead of tables. Either that or they'll Mm -hmm. just be spread out more at the tables um, and no shared supplies. Yeah. And then like the classes will be cut a little short for disinfecting afterwards. So I have been looking at, so there's a book called Studio Thinking from the Start, the K through A Art Educators Handbook. Yeah. So I've been kind of using that to plan. And so, oh, another thing that is changing is, so I used to see one class from each grade every day of the week. I think most teachers probably have that schedule, but they are changing it to be six week rotations. And we did that Mm. in the past with just fourth grade and now fourth and fifth. And now we're doing with everybody to reduce the amount of kids that the teachers are exposed to Mm. in a given week. So it'll be like six weeks. I'll see one first grade class every day for those six weeks, one third grade class every day and so on. So kind of like condensing everything into six weeks. So I think I'm going to have them focus on one studio habit each week. Mm -hmm. And maybe like on Monday, we talk about the studio habit. We share an artist who kind of exemplifies that habit. And then maybe we do some activities in our sketchbook the next day that relate to the studio habit. So if it's observed, maybe we have some, I have some things set up at the tables for them to draw from observation or something like that. And then the next three days, they're working on a drawing or collage of their choice. I don't think I'll be able to use paint this year, or at least at the beginning, because my room doesn't have a sink. And they are limiting student movement in the hallways. So in the past, I would have a couple students carry the water. I use like doggy bowls for water, like inside of a tray. So they'd carry those trays to wash it out and wash out the brushes and stuff. But I don't, 
I don't think that will work because they're only allowed to leave for bathroom breaks as a class and then have to have an adult escort for other necessary break times. So we may be just doing drawing, collage, maybe some fiber art. I actually have a lot of weavings that we started last year and didn't finish because we Mm. didn't end up going back. So that's individual supplies, but I haven't thought through everything yet. But I think using sketchbooks and focusing on the studio habits will allow me to still get at like that tab and choice Mm -hmm. philosophy and like having them think critically about what artists do and how they make choices. But I just don't think they're going to have as many choices as they did in my room last year. Right. I don't think I'll have an architecture center this first semester with blocks and things like that. Yeah, because that would all be shared. Yeah. And I want to use a lot of recyclable materials too Mm -hmm. uh, and mixed media because those are really easy and free to find and have, you know, separated individually for students. And if I'm also, I think I'm also, I'm going to be expected to also teach virtually at the same time. And so students at home (laughs) could easily access those kinds of supplies, hopefully, like real boxes and stuff like that. Yeah, I don't know exactly what that part will look like yet. Yeah, uh, it's it's all very much a work in progress. Yeah, we have a couple meetings this week and next week. Hopefully, I'll get some more answers. Right. Uh, It's such a crazy time to be (laughs) trying to teach. Yeah, but one Uh, oh one thing I guess I didn't really address the other half of your question. So the book that I was uh talking about, the Studio Thinking book, I like that for each habit, it gives some examples of artists that you could talk about. And for the most part, it's really inclusive. So like, for example, Mm -hmm. I just flipped to the Understand Art Worlds one. And one of the artists that it profiles is Kehinde Wiley. But then there's like another Mm -hmm. one where it profiles Picasso. So Mm -hmm. just making sure like not just using what's in there as a default, but making sure, okay, if I'm sharing one kind of old white male artist finding another contemporary artist of color to share Mm -hmm. also. Right. Yeah, like trying to keep that balance Mm -hmm. and then I feel like there'll be a lot of like what we were talking about earlier with having students help set the norms and making sure you're really thinking about like whether movement is an issue only for you or if it's like a real Mm -hmm. issue I mean all of those things I feel like will be very different because of the pandemic and you know having to limit movement and limit physical connection yeah and I guess instead I can maybe be more lenient with the noise or volume in the classroom. Right. Yeah, I've seen art teachers online talking about modeling the, you know, the air hug and the air high five and all of those type of things. Yeah, yep. <laughs> or like having like a hand, paper hand on like a yardstick for like <laughs> high fiving each other. Oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, so definitely there will be opportunities for being creative as educators this year. Yeah, oh, so many. That's a nice way to frame it too. <laughs> Very nice right. way to frame it so many opportunities to be creative (laughs) and then there's always a very good chance that we will go 100% virtual again at some point during the first quarter so creative and 
possible. Yeah. Are going to be traits that we need. Yeah. And good things to model for kids too. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming yeah. back and revisiting. No problem. I feel like you have really great advice. So thank you. Well, good. I hope I'm, I'm excited to hear what other people have to say about these questions too. I really appreciate you reaching back out and bringing them up because they are so important. Like not just now, but always. Yeah. It, I mean, it was definitely something that I realized like, oh, wow, this was completely yeah. lacking, <laughs> completely lacking from what I talked about. Yeah. And as I read and, and research and do my own work, it's been really helpful to talk to other people about it. Right. Definitely. Yeah. We're all in this together. Yep. I wanted to also kind of get into how it's been teaching from a distance now. And are you, I, I know here we're not opening up this school year and probably right. not, not again in the fall. What does it oh, look wow. like? Yeah. What does it look yeah, like for we, you and how has that kind of switch been? Our last day of school was Friday. And so we did, yeah, mm-hmm. we did not open back up for the school year. It was all distance learning. Yeah. And then as far as I know, so far we will oh, reopen in August, but it will be very different. Like they're still obviously trying to formulate a plan, but there have been like rumors of it being like, you know, certain students will come on mm-hmm. this day and certain students will come on this other day and things like that Uh, or like and then the days that they don't come it will be online it's like a hybrid model right but I'm actually actually just entered my third trimester I'm on my second pregnancy so I will not be I will be on maternity leave like right at the beginning of the school year so unfortunately I will not get to be there for that but I mean who knows how long it will last and might last more than just the first three months of school so oh well congratulations that's I I mean I knew (laughs) something but very very exciting that you're getting closer to the end yeah the end is in sight yeah getting to meet this new little one yeah and my my daughter right now is she's a little over two and she just is getting so excited too like oh I bet all the things we do like she'll bring up baby sister like oh Oh. baby sister when she's here and it's so cute oh that's adorable yeah yeah so your fall will look quite different because you'll be on maternity leave but then who knows what it will look like coming back yeah and then as far as the virtual learning has gone I really have not had a lot to do Mm -hmm. I know different schools have had their like elective teachers kind of have different levels of like requirements or involvement and our school had us had all the specials teachers do like a choice board every Mm -hmm. week so had to come up with a certain number of activities that they could do at home. So I had to design those, Mm -hmm. but they were sent then to the classroom teacher to send out to the students and parents. So I never had like a virtual Zoom class or anything like that. So my workload was pretty light during all Mm -hmm. of that, which was really great because I got to spend a lot more time with my daughter. And then really, I had kind of taken a little break from art making since I like for the entire first trimester, 
trimester of my pregnancy because I was just so sick and like Mm. miserable. Yeah. And so then the time really gave me extra time and energy to get back into a daily practice. Yeah. um, Which was great. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah, I know that has not been the experience for everybody. So I feel really lucky that I was like able to find the right or like be in the right mindset for that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's also a really nice way, like having that daily practice is a nice way to kind of come up to the birth of your second child. And, you know, knowing that you're coming to a time where you might not have time for that daily right. practice. Yeah. Or maybe it's like building a habit that you'll be able to work in that time. I mean, uh, you never you never know. <laughs> I know. I'm hoping it's that it's the latter. Yeah, the second. I'm like, oh man, like we're just getting in this great rhythm and oh. then like this awesome little baby's gonna come, but she's gonna mess it all up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think it'll be good. And that's the one thing I like about the collages is I feel like there's just so much possibility. Like I've made mm-hmm. like a hundred already and oh, I'm not amazing. bored of it yet. And it's like I can spend anywhere from two minutes to thirty minutes on it. And so yeah. I, I can and I can take it to the couch and I can take it to the kitchen table. So yeah. I think I can at least keep up with the sketchbook practice and the collages and yeah. hopefully a little bit of sewing or painting here and there. But yeah. It will be really weird when I do end my maternity leave and go back to school because it's like I haven't been in the classroom since March and then I probably won't go back until November or December. So it'll be a long stretch of time that I wasn't in the classroom. Right. And then you'll have winter break. So you'll have another little break. Yeah. yeah, I'm gonna have to relearn right. how to be a teacher. I mean, but I mean, I think in a sense we all will mm-hmm. and are with all the changes. Yeah, and like what it will look like in the future. Yeah, yeah, I know it's all very uncertain for us here as well. But there's talk of like specials, all specials, doing basically virtual teaching even when the kids go back, mm. so there's less contact and less yeah. like movement within the school. I have heard that idea thrown around too. (laughs) It's just like, obviously, I'm on board with whatever we need to do to Mm. protect people and continue to avoid resurgences. Right, absolutely. But it just makes me so apprehensive and scared and sad. It's like, this is not what our kids should be experiencing at school. Yeah. I just want them to be able to be in that community studio environment and everything. Yeah, like missing out on all of the materials and supplies, but then Mm -hmm. also the social aspect of creating art within the classroom studio. Right, especially with the tab model. Like Mm -hmm. there's so much more room for conversation and whether it's just like the bonding of talking about anything while drawing together or Mm -hmm. talking with each other about what they're working on and then like ending up discovering things together or teaching each other skills or techniques. Yeah. All of that may be missing. Yeah. Uh, Yep. Do you have any tips that you would give a new art teacher kind of coming into it, especially someone interested in tab? Well, I feel like a tip that I received that was really helpful because I mean, I feel like I'm still very much a new teacher. Mm -hmm. But one tip that I received was like to kind of be in it for the long game. 
and don't really kind of lower your expectations and view your first three to five years more like your first year, especially with getting all of the moving parts of the tab studio set up and like, don't be afraid to go slow and Mm -hmm. don't feel like you have to offer every single medium right away or Mm -hmm. offer a hundred percent choice right away. Just kind of go slow and focus on building relationships with your students first. And then as you go pilot things and see how they go and don't be afraid to fail and say, okay, kids, we can see that that didn't work out. Let's try it this way instead and be along for the ride for a couple of years until you find your footing and find your flow. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That is so important to, you know, kind of give yourself grace with it all as well. Definitely. And I like that going slow and yeah, not diving into everything all at once and not beating yourself up if something doesn't work, just using it as like a learning moment for you and the kids. Right. And just getting to know your kids and what they need and like their behaviors mm-hmm. will show you what their need, what they need and mm-hmm. what they need might be a hybrid of choice and more structured project. Yeah. Not all students or, or even not all classes are going to be able to handle the same responsibilities mm-hmm. or freedoms. So. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like offering less choice is not always a bad thing if it's what is going to help that group eventually get to more choice. Right. I've had to do a little bit of that with certain certain groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, I struggled this year with kinder and first grade a little bit, but mostly kindergarten, just trying to wrap my head around how to offer them Mm -hmm. lots and lots of choice. And with them, I have 30 minutes with everybody else. I have longer. I have 50. Yeah. So like such a quick class and they're so little and it's like their first time in school, figuring out just how to be little people in like a society. <laughs> yeah. Yep. How to sit and walk and talk. Right. And touch things. And <laughs> oh, it. Yeah. Sharing. Yeah. So that, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that was what I had to kind of like walk back the choice and, yeah. and bring in more structure. One thing I've enjoyed doing with the younger grades, younger kiddos, like mm-hmm. pre-K and K for me is a lot of stuff inspired by like the Reggio Emilia philosophy. Yeah. Like I, for a while I had, I had like four stations set up that they would rotate between. And like one of the stations was loose parts, which is really popular in like Reggio and Montessori type environments. And so, and that's kind of one thing I was like collecting materials for. So having like feathers and corks and nuts and bolts and sequins and straws and bobble caps and all this stuff. And like having like a tray or a frame or something for them. And then encouraging them to like make a picture with those things inside of that or like just things that maybe wouldn't be considered a traditional art medium or art activity I think were Mm -hmm. were really popular with the littles yeah and then would those be things that they just create their image and then put everything away and maybe take a picture maybe not or are they like gluing gluing it down at all no I definitely had to give explicit instructions like we're not (laughs) gluing these pieces we are not putting them in our pocket (laughs) so we want them to 
to be here for us next time to keep playing with. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, these do not belong to you. You can use them. Yeah, I've had, (laughs) it just reminds me, I had a kindergarten boy. It must have been like a week or two before we kind of stopped going into school who came into my class and immediately like pulled out of his pocket a bird feather and was like, look, I got a feather for you. (laughs) The sweetest. That's a very sweet gesture. I'm not sure I want a bird feather from like the playground. (laughs) And I noticed if it was a class later in the day and we had done something that involved beads or glittery paper, something fun, like those things would end up on the floor. And like Mm -hmm. maybe the next class, I would see like three little girls crawling around on their hands and knees to (laughs) collect all of them. And they were like, oh my gosh, look what I found. And they're stuffing it in their pockets. (laughs) So I try to channel that sometimes in my material sourcing like oh I just have to have this because it just makes me happy the way it looks and feels even if it Uh, doesn't serve a purpose for me yet (laughs) yeah all those little treasures yes treasures oh my daughter is almost five so she's like she would absolutely be crawling on the floor to grab those sparkly (laughs) shiny beads yes I love it (laughs) kind of like shifting gears a little bit to talk Mm -hmm. more about your work. I know we've talked a bit about it. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask more about like the business side of it and like where and how you show your work, where and how if you're like selling anything, how you find those opportunities or how you Mm -hmm. handle the business side of it. So that would be the part of that (laughs) I need to work on the most. Mm -hmm. I started started to here and there like last summer I did two or three art fairs here Mm -hmm. and that was really fun and I would maybe do it again I would definitely do it again, but I would switch up like some of the things that I brought. Like I just noticed that, you know, people are more looking for lower priced items or like Mm -hmm. something that's a little bit more of a functional object than a fine art piece in some cases. But yeah, it was like the first time that I had my art out in front of people and they could come in and talk to me about it. So that was really great. Yeah. But I've been really scared to (laughs) apply to to like open calls and different things. And so that's something I've been working on trying to like notice what my inner dialogue is around that kind of stuff. And if Mm -hmm. I'm thinking to myself, oh, I should apply for this. And then I don't end up applying for it because maybe in my head, I'm actually I'm thinking, oh, well, you know, I probably won't get in. What's the point? I'm going to save my 15 to $40 or whatever. (laughs) So trying to combat that a little bit and be like convincing myself that well if I don't apply of course I'm never going to get in and so that's kind of on my to-do list is to start applying for more things yeah I mean it's such a hard thing to combat and I I have to tell myself that exactly what you just said over and over again like if you don't apply you can't possibly get in if you do apply like there's a chance yes you might get rejected and like that's okay just keep applying yeah you know (laughs) Yeah, so that's a like big thing on my to do list is to apply to more things. Yeah. As far as selling, I did sell some Mm -hmm. pieces at the art fairs that I went to. I sold a lot of prints, but I did sell a couple originals. Nice. And then I have a few paintings that were on display at 
like an art and antique shop Mm -hmm. that is is nearby. And I I sold one painting through them. But other than that, I haven't really gotten really into selling my work that much. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is it's kind of been in flux. Like I still had a lot of my a lot of what I was showing at the art fair was some of my landscapes and I had prints made of those. And then I had some like experimental abstract paintings on paper. And so still kind of trying to figure out exactly what my new style, I guess, is or direction. And I feel really good about the direction that I'm going in right now. So I feel like I'm slowly gaining the confidence to apply to things and then try to advertise that things are for sale. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I mean, I really love the work that you're doing now that I keep seeing. Yeah. And I do still see a connection to the the landscapes and sort Mm -hmm. of like how it how it's flowed through this shift. Yeah, definitely. Like the aerial mapping comes into it. Yeah. And I was noticing even in some of the compositions, like there will be like a shape where there's like a strong diagonal line. So it's kind of Mm -hmm. similar to like that view down a road or Mm -hmm. I'll have like a strip of paper or fabric that runs along the top of the composition. So it's like, oh, that's kind of like a horizon line. Or if those elements aren't present, then yeah, like you said, just the different shapes coming up against each other evoke the aerial imagery. So I see a connection too. I think sometimes it just takes a little bit of time to like catch up to yourself. You're like... (laughs) wait, this feels so new and crazy. And is it totally different from what I was doing? Should I just go back to that? And now it's like, okay, no, if you keep following what you're interested in and curious about and what feels right, it all connects. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like the way you're producing, having this daily practice and producing a lot of work is a really good way to kind of see, to practice and discover what your aesthetic is now and what your style is and yeah, yeah. what you like and just having like an abundance of work to look at. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm just now thinking about trying to translate these compositions into paintings. And so I was looking back at, you know, the 90 some collages that mm-hmm. I had. Have. And out of those, I think I, I like chose 20 that I thought, okay, these I like the most or like these would make a good painting. And so that's what a third or a fourth. I'm an art teacher, not a math teacher. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, it kind of showed me you just have to have so mm-hmm. much going on that there's going to be a few that are duds and there's going to be some that are really good but you're not going to get to those good ones if you don't just keep going yeah and that's it's kind of the same philosophy with applying to things right like yeah you might get some rejections but (laughs) you can't get any acceptances unless you apply yes yeah it's so hard to push through that I had done one night of painting a couple days ago and I left the studio feeling so awesome and I was like I love where this painting ended up and then the next day I started two other paintings just like the first layer and oh my gosh I thought they were so ugly (laughs) and horrible and I just hate that feeling of like walking 
walking out of the studio and being like, oh, I don't like what I did or where things left, even though I know I have to go back and like do more layers and like they're not Mm -hmm. finished, but figuring out how to get past that feeling and just keep going. Something I'm working on right now. (laughs) It's so hard. I would have to probably put them like turn them around and put them off to the side and just like do something else. Definitely did that. Yeah. They are facing the wall right now. I'm just not ready. Not ready to do the next layer yet. (laughs) Yeah. Put them in timeout. (laughs) Yeah. That's exactly right. Uh, Which is, you know, not something I do with my kid, but (laughs) that like idea is right things away I think it's fine for an inanimate object (laughs) (laughs) okay I have a few wrapping up questions okay what are you curious about right now oh I am really curious about making my own materials so since I've been kind of sourcing materials like paper and fabric I'm also really intrigued by the idea of like making my own ink or paint and then making my own paper yeah have you done no I haven't done anything yet I have like a book on making ink um I think it's called make ink nice and I've had I got it for Christmas like a year or two ago and I still haven't tried any of the recipes yet and then I saw someone on somebody who did a takeover on the artist mother podcast Uh shared about making their own paper and they had shared a website and I can't remember what it was what the URL was right now but there was like a website or blog that had like step-by-step instructions for making your own paper at home and like making your own tools for that so I have that like bookmarked to try to do this summer so there's an artist who was one of my professors in grad school Joan Hall who Mm -hmm. makes her own paper but she makes like gigantic pieces of paper and she uses paper somewhat sculpturally she might be an interesting one to look at just for that process. Yeah, definitely. Her work isn't aesthetically similar to yours, really, but it's just that process would be, I think, interesting to you. And she's a printmaker who makes like gigantic prints as well. That's awesome. I'll definitely have to look look her up and try to learn about her process. Thank you. Yeah, like she's got videos I know on her website of her stomping around in rain boots in her, you know, sloshing around (laughs) to, to make the paper and to press the fibers yeah. into into each other. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. She was really fun. Like I got to kind of be part of that process a little bit in grad school. And she was just really oh my fun gosh. to work with. Cool. Yeah. Makes me think of like um, stomping grapes. <laughs> yes, totally. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Another kind of just get to know you. What's your mm-hmm. go-to order at your favorite restaurant? Ooh. Well, my favorite thing to get right now for takeout mm-hmm. is sushi and I know your people say you're not supposed to have that when you're pregnant (laughs) but I don't listen to those recommendations (laughs) you'll be fine yeah I love, love, love. Oh, what is, is it? A, a calif? No. Yeah. A Philly roll. Mm-hmm. Whichever one has salmon and cream Ooh, cheese. Yeah. That's my favorite takeout meal. That or Greek food, like a mm. Greek salad. Falafel. Yum. Love it. Okay. Is there anybody that you would like to thank or give a shout out to? I will give a shout out to my husband for supporting me and like getting my art practice going again. Yes. And also to my students for inspiring me. And even just through this conversation, I'm like realizing more of the ways that being around them and their work and the 
elementary art studio materials have Mm -hmm. impacted me Mm -hmm. in a positive way, which is good to remember on the days where you come home just dog tired and so frustrated. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Think back to all the positives. Yeah. And kind of in a selfish way, but it's okay to be selfish, I think. Yes. It is. Like, okay, you know what? I saw some beautiful kindergarten paintings today that are going to feed my practice. Or I saw an example of perseverance or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I love that. And where can listeners connect with you online? I share most of my work on Instagram. And my handle is at Danielle Nilsen. And my last name is spelled N-I-L-S-E-N. And then my website is also daniellenelson.com. Cool. And I will link to those as well. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Danielle. This was wonderful. Yeah, I agree. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, Danielle. I especially loved how she gathers inspiration from her students and the materials of an elementary art classroom and how she thinks of everything as painting from photos to collage to scraps of fabric sewn together. Her work is beautifully composed and even more impressive within the brief time periods available between teaching and parenting and the parameters she sets for herself of not cutting the pieces again once the blocks of color or pattern are removed from a magazine. Go look at Danielle's work. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or Teaching Artist Podcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.